Regrettably, the debate about post-secondary education has devolved into just another culture war issue, with one camp saying everyone should go to college, and another saying skip college and learn a trade instead. Today, Brent sits down with Ben Wildalski, a visiting scholar at the University of Virginia's School of Education and Human Development, who challenges this false dichotomy. In his recent book, The Career Arts, Wildalski argues that education, job, and career success require integrating broad-based skills, like those acquired through a liberal arts and social science education, with more narrow technical skills, such as those acquired through credential programs. Integrating these skills, Wildalski contends, supports well-rounded and resilient workers who can more easily adapt to an unpredictable and rapidly changing economy. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Ben Woldovsky, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Well, thanks so much for having me, Brent. Well, this is a, a very exciting podcast, and I have to say long anticipated um, with the publication of your new book. And um, we're going to get into that, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But I will have to put you through the rigors of uh, the hardly working vocational questions uh, of, you know, how did how did Ben Moldovsky become Ben Moldovsky? Uh, and how did he, where did he start? How did he wind up and who helped him where he is and, and who helped him along the way? Well, I, I love the question, Brent. And of course I, I have to say, I just, the other day I was out giving a book talk and I think somebody used the word vocation and I immediately thought of you. And I, I, I hope I even cited you because you know, you have, uh, you, you have obviously found a great vocation, but I've often, I think I've told you, you've, I think you may have missed your vocation as a journalist because you've, uh, I've seen you in action really getting people to talk about the, the, the deep, heavy stuff with a kind of innocuous opening question like this one. So, so thank you. Well, the um, deep, heavy stuff is there. And, it just needs an opportunity to be let off its leash for a little bit. So <laughs> uh, that's, that's the point. Uh, anyway. That's right. Who was the economist? What's that? Who was the economist who talked about animal spirits? Uh, let's see. Uh yeah. I believe that was Hayek, was it not? I can't remember. Um, but yeah. One of those one of guys. Those, one, of one of those, those Austrian economists, so, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, look, I, I suppose, you know, the, the one way to, to answer this, it was the, the basic story is, you know, I was a journalist for many years. I sort of wandered into that just out of college and ended up focusing on education, but was always sort of really interested in education policy and sort of the wonkier side of journalism. And kind of improbably, despite never studying economics, found myself enjoying interviewing and, you know, spending time with education economists who can teach you all sorts of wonderful things. And basically, after years in journalism, I sort of moved into the nonprofit world, um, although it's, it's often been said, I mean, the for-profit journalism is not necessarily as a as financially healthy a place as the, the nonprofit world of <laughs> think tanks and universities. Um, but, you know, I increasingly became interested in not only the sort of nuts and bolts of education policy, uh, increasingly I became interested in what happened in, in higher education. And then just in the last probably four or five years, I've turned much more of my attention to the connection between education and the workforce. And that's really what led me to write the book. So I'm going to push you just a little bit further back than that, though, because one of the things that I'm really interested in, uh, maybe one day I'll write my own book on this, but 
like, I'm really interested in this question of like how people come up with the idea of themselves in terms of their vocation and career and job. Uh, who would you say, how would you say you arrived at uh, being a policy wonk? Who was, who was the, who were the people that kind of said, you know, you've got, you've got kind of a gift here. Maybe you should think about developing it. Gosh, you know, I, I think I really have to say my dad, you know, uh, that's sort of the, the, the obvious suspect. Obviously, I would, you know, he, he's, he's been, been dead, dead for many years. I would not give him any responsibility for any of this, but I would certainly give him, to the extent there's any credit, um, for whatever I've gotten right. It's, you know, he, he was an academic. He, he was the son of immigrants, first generation college student, very poor student in high school who somehow squeezed his sort of... Uh, squeezed his way into Brooklyn College and then sort of blossomed and became quite, quite a well-known political scientist. Um, I definitely did not see myself after college. I thought about graduate school or getting a PhD, but I didn't feel that I had the sort of fire in the belly for the pure academic life. But uh, even though I hadn't really done journalism in college, when I had the opportunity to get an internship in D.C. when I was about 23 years old and started getting the opportunity to, to write, and to write about these kinds of serious topics, but I, I tried to do so in an accessible way. The first thing I ever published was called McJobs. It was about jobs at McDonald's, making the case that rather than be a sort of dead-end wasteland, these are actually great jobs for teaching you how to work and to give you the core skills that help you get ahead. So I think early on, I, I, I suppose you could say I was definitely interested in the serious work. I did not see myself doing, you know, econometric analysis or the sort of very detailed, you know, kind of work that certain kinds of academics do. But I did find myself pretty quickly drawn to getting to sort of spend time engaging with these ideas, but also to spend a lot of time thinking about how they could be written about and talked about and presented to others. This whole notion that I really was was a very exciting place to be in DC. This was in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, the sort of intellectual engagement of the, the world of thought journalism, you know, for all of its, its sins at that time, still sort of the, the heyday of places like the New Republic and Washington Monthly, the public interest where I worked for a few years for Irving Kristol and Nat Glazer. Those were places that both took ideas seriously, um, but also, you know, we, we were very attentive to how to bring them in an accurate and an authentic and an interesting way to to readers. And I think, to, to go back to your original question, I do think that my, my dad, although he was very much of a traditional academic, you know, in his field, but he also was somebody who I think um, was, was sort of, was, was cared about communicating in a compelling way. So I think that I have to say that was a big influence on me. Yeah, our fathers are important figures for sure. Um, I was just uh, yesterday on Twitter, somebody posted, not Twitter, yesterday on X, um, uh, uh, somebody posted a photo of, a, of an old World Book encyclopedia set. And uh, I was looking at it, and I was thinking, it, it brought back so many memories, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because my dad was the one who insisted that we purchased this over the objections of my mother who insisted that we could not afford to purchase the, the world book encyclopedia. He insisted on, on 
you know, on having it. And, uh, and I spent endless hours reading the world book encyclopedia, you know, as a 10, 11, 12, 13 year old. And, uh, I, I really look at, look back at that as like this pivotal moment in my life now, you know, like if we hadn't had that, what would have happened? I suppose I would have, I'm still the person I am. I still would have been really curious, but, uh, I had access to all of this, um, all this information and all you know, uh, there was, there were other people in the world who evidently cared about all of this stuff the way, and were interested in it the same way I was. And I think that that's sort of the germ seed, uh, of my own, of my own journey. And, um, then that, and that I think gets us pretty close to where I want to start, um, with talking about your book. Um, uh, how did you come up, uh, how did you come up with the idea for this project? You know, I think it was a process. It was a gradual process. I actually wrote a little essay for my, my publisher asked me to write something for their the Princeton University Press website. So I did a, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred word essay about this. And I realized, you know, going back probably a decade or so, I had been I had the opportunity to be a blogger, which was the then kind of new thing, which was a lot of fun for the Chronicle of Higher Education. And I was mostly writing about global topics because I had done a book called The Great Brain Race about globalization of higher education. And in the process, I did a little blog post that talked about the sort of false dichotomy within college about the idea that you could study something abstract, you know, sort of ivory tower, or you could study something that was practical and useful to help get you a job. And I I use a reference which uh, increasingly, maybe you'll get it, not not increasingly, I find that certainly it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's not something my kids remember, but there was a classic Saturday Night Live sketch from the late uh, 1970s with uh, the late Gilda Radner and uh, Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase. And it's about a, one of these fictional ads. And it, it's about a, a product called um, Shimmer, which is a dessert topping. But then the other character comes in and says, no, it's not. It's a floor wax. And they get into a big fight. And then Chevy Chase comes in very suave and says, it's a dessert topping and a floor wax. So this is a, a bit of a long way of explaining how I came to come up with I, I came up with this idea for this blog post that you know we have to stop thinking in this sort of false dichotomy of you know ed, pure you know pure library tower education versus something that helps get you a job and it really is both and instead of either or and so that was sort of simmering away somewhere in the back of my mind as I did lots of other higher ed topics I was fascinated by you know the college admissions process I was at U.S. News and World Report for a while as the editor of their college guides. I was very interested in, um, you know, you name it, just all the debates that play out on college campuses. But I think what happened is I went to work for Strata Education Network, now now called Strata Education Foundation. And there were, as you can imagine, large organization, lots of schools of thought about the value of degrees, the value of short-term credentials that are much less expensive, that are much more targeted to careers, which have a lot of appeal to many people, and there were a lot of surveys that show the appeal, but I couldn't help thinking about there has to be a way to reconcile all the economic evidence that exists for the long-term value of degrees, and that's something that's held up even as the number of Americans enrolling in higher education has just skyrocketed, and it was 50% of high school graduates in 1970 were going on to some kind of post-secondary community college or college. It got up to 70% just a few years ago, but during that whole time, that did not dilute the value. That actually coincided with a record run-up in the wage premium. 
it's been a little flatter for about the last 15 years, but it's still extremely high. So in other words, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of giving, giving, giving you a little bit of detail about some of what's in my book, I found myself trying to figure out how could we sort of try and do something of a both-and approach to all of the consumer demand, very understandably, for stuff that was, it was shorter and affordable and people could fit into their lives. They didn't have to put everything aside for four years. But with what we know from the economists, who I still think are worth listening to on many things, about the value of you know, what they call human capital, the value of what you really learn when you get an education. And so that was something that um, after I left Strata, I realized it was a great opportunity to try and put down what I had been thinking about and sometimes arguing about, my colleagues might remind me, um, and try and really break it down into a book not that was designed, again, not designed for the sort of traditional academics, you know, which I'm, I'm not, I'm not one, but that might be useful to people like everybody from, you know, the, I hope the readers of, you know, magazines like The Atlantic or you know, the readers of The New York Times, but also to parents, to teachers, to counselors, and to the students themselves who are not going to necessarily wade through all the research or have these long conversations with economists, but who really care about the bottom line, which is, is it worth doing this? If I have choices between different kinds of programs, how do I decide? What should I be thinking about, not just for my immediate education or the first job I want to get out of college, but what about the second or the third or the fifth job in 10 or 20 years? And I came up with the, the idea that really, if I could try and compress that into a readable form, that that could be something that would be useful to people. Okay, so let's go right into the heart of what you just said. Uh, we... We have benefited enormously as a society um, of pushing a lot of people toward colleges and uh, four-year degrees, colleges and universities, as well as you know community colleges and but all forms of post-secondary. That that's that's been a huge uh, a huge benefit. And like everything, you always get the largest returns off of investments when you're early on doing the right thing right it, it it's hard to maintain that um it, the the hockey stick as it were you know at some point things begin to level out and you're not going to get uh, as as high a return later on but talk about what you found about the value of the bachelor's degree um what is it where where do you think it's it's value it's um its purpose in the human capital development sector fit? Well, you know, one way to answer that is just in sort of in very dollars and cents terms is what's now pretty well known, but I think really is, is still worth repeating for, for people who may not be familiar, is there are a lot of data, you know, about the average annual salaries, what, what's, what economists call the wage premium, for people who with college degrees versus those who have only a high school diploma. And on average, it's about a 70% wage premium. So it's a very significant difference in annual earnings. Now, of course, there are many caveats to that, including a lot of people like Tony Carnevale at Georgetown and the Center on Education and Workforce have done some really nice detailed reports breaking down how much it matters what you study. Um, some fields get much higher earnings than others. And by the same token, you can take Typically, a two-year credential, a community college associate degree, is not typically as valuable as a four-year bachelor's degree. But if you take an in-demand field, and people always say computer science, but it, you know, it could also be 
it could be um, maybe maybe some kind of nursing degree or it could be something in design. There are certain fields or in finance that are in demand where a two-year degree may end up leading to higher average earnings than a four-year degree in something, you know, I'll, I'll pick on my own major, comparative literature, you know, back in the day that isn't typically uh, associated with higher immediate earnings, right? So that's one way to answer your question. And there's a lot more one could say about that. But there is just a very robust evidence base for strong average average annual wage returns for college diplomas. Um, now, in terms of the, I think what you're asking in part is why. And I guess what I would say, you know, is that the, the way that our sort of college education system has developed in this country, and it's not quite the same, and there are many places that have, still have a standard three-year degree trajectory, places like the UK, for example, where you'll study, you'll start at 18, and if you're going to be doing law or medicine, you start studying law or medicine at 18. We have still have maintained, though, this general education idea, which has been sort of much debated, and there's lots of complaints about it, all the ways in which it's very highly imperfect in many schools. It's been diluted. A lot of the what were once very rigorous core requirements are often very sort of loosey-goosey distribution requirements. But nevertheless, there is still the idea that you're going to college to try to become an educated person in a broad sense, which means things like learning a lot of you know reading, analytical abilities, the famous phrase critical thinking, learning to learning about information, absorbing information, analyzing information, learning how to synthesize and to restate uh, information, and those are all extremely helpful skills over the long term. Even though they might not be something that you know your average employer necessarily thinks of as as, as part of their immediate checklist, you also of course have people who go to college and study. In addition to the you know, sort of the philosophy and the art history or the comparative literature, the things that are considered a little more ivory tower, you know, liberal arts subjects. You know, if you look at the actual most popular majors, many people are studying business. That's probably the single most when you break it down into accounting and finance and uh, marketing and so forth. A lot of people are studying teaching. A lot of people are studying various kinds of nursing, health professions, computer science, of course. And as we, we, we read about, humanities have gotten much less popular in the last you know, 20, 30, 40 years. So what it boils down to is people uh, often come out of college with a combination of these broad skills, which are extremely helpful for navigating a career, because, of course, we know people already have many, many jobs, 10 or 12 jobs, and it's going to get even more as people live longer. At the same time, they get a lot of the targeted skills that are extremely helpful for what the job market needs right now. And that could be the nursing or the teaching skills. It could be the computer science skills. It could be the famous coding, right? So it's really that mixture that college provides. And so I really think that that has a lot to do with the wage premium that we hear about. Um, and despite all the grumbling, uh, it's been very, very robust. There's been a little tiny bit of evidence in the last few years since COVID of some what they call wage compression, where the lower wage jobs... Um, are paying a little bit more relative, so you you know you could say the college wage premium has 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 faltered just in the last few years. But really, I think if you look at it in terms of the historical patterns, um, there's just still so much evidence so, that that combination seems to be what people yeah, so, want. So let me ask though, uh, this is something that that we've wrestled with, or I've wrestled with, uh, is how much of the how much of those outcomes that we're talking about the. Uh, are the function of the types of people who choose to go to college rather than the degree itself? 
But I love the question, uh, Brent, you know, and it's, it's sort of one of the things that I talk about at some length and which is, you know, it comes up. It's often, honestly, you, you put it very neutrally and, and nicely, but people often present it a little bit cynically or, or certainly skeptically that it's the signaling effect or sometimes known as the sheepskin yeah, effect. I'm not, I'm not exactly um, talking about that, though. I'm talking about, okay. like, uh, uh, if it's a signaling effect, it's a signaling effect on the entrance to the four-year degree and rather than the exit, right? So people are telling us something about themselves when they say, I want to go to college. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. But, go ahead. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I think back to, you know, <laughs> one of the things I did in my 20s when I was in D.C. was I, I was I was for a, a brief period, probably the world's worst research assistant at AEI for about nine months. But I did learn about a lot of fascinating social policy topics, including the idea of the phenomena of creaming, you know, which is sometimes the term that's used for social programs that get good results. And it has to do with the population that they select. Um, so you're not necessarily getting a true experiment. So, look, it's a very legitimate thing to wonder about. Um, it's a little hard you know, to design sort of perfect experiments. But I guess I will say, and I discuss some of this in the book, you know, there are some pretty good, well-designed experiments that we'll look at. For example, two populations of students who fall either just above or just below the cutoff for admissions to college. So these would not be the star students. These would be the weaker students, some of whom are, you know, they're, they're, they're a little weaker, but they're still able to qualify because they're just above the bar and some are just below the bar. So one of the things you discover is those who are just above the bar and who go through college actually do a lot better in terms of their future earnings. Uh, a somewhat analogous example, but it gets more to this question of signaling, was done by an economist at UCLA, where she did this in um, one of the elite universities in, uh, I believe it was in Colombia, I'm not certain, in Latin America. But essentially, they dropped some of their, they kept their selectivity. They were one of the top 10 schools, so they had very highly selective. So the selection at the front end didn't change. It was still a fairly small institution, so the numbers didn't change. So if to the extent the education was simply a proxy for their selectivity, which is one definition of the signaling mm -hmm. phenomena, you would say they should do great no matter what. But they actually, for certain majors, I believe it was business and economics, they dropped some of their degree requirements. So they, you know, for various reasons, they made them a little bit less rigorous. They were not quite as tough. They took away three or four of their core classes from the requirements. And what she found in this research, this is just in the last five or six years, was that the wages of those graduates went down um, after these requirements were dropped. And they also had a harder time finding work. So there was a real effect of the lack of rigor, despite the selection being exactly the same at the front end. So honestly, I got this example from Larry Katz, who's a, probably the most, you know, the eminent labor economist in the country at Harvard University. He cited this to me, and I used it in the book, just as, as a great real-world example of the idea that what you learn in college actually matters, contrary to the view that it's simply how you were pre-selected. Um, and he, he actually gave another example I can't resist, which I, I may have talked about this with you once before, but, you know, he actually talked, it's not from higher ed, it's from high school, but he talked about, you know, the, the how important the universal high school movement was in the United States early in the 20th century, trying to push more and more Americans to get high school diplomas as a matter of course. And he talked about places like Iowa having, say, I, I think this is the correct figure, about a 20% improvement in crop yields mm. during the time that many more people were going to high school. So the people who were farming would have a high school education. So they were learning about science. They were learning about agricultural techniques. The crop yields went way up. 
And, you know, he said to me, it's not the Larry Katz said to me, it's not like the crop suddenly knew that these people had a piece of paper and that they were impressed by. They had learned something. So I think that that at least to me is a it may not fully answer the question, but I think it, 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 it's strongly indicative that what you learn really matters, which is the whole human capital theory of, of why education is important. So let me ask this just a little bit a little bit different way. Are we sending too many people to college? I don't think so. I mean, I guess I would say if what I referred to earlier in the conversation was the fact that the robot, the, the wage premium not only stayed strong, but actually grew even stronger at the same time that we had more and more Americans going to going to college. I'm thinking back to the late, late 80s and the 90s, early 2000s. If you didn't have that evidence, I think it would be a, a more of a reasonable something, certainly something to wonder about. It's not a taboo to raise the question. But what I would say is if you see us going from 50% of the population going on to post-secondary from high school to 70%, and that coincides with a big run-up in the wage premium rather than a dilution, that to me, and it's true, the graduation rates did not keep pace. So we still have a long way to go. That's our big, that's the big Achilles heel. You know, 62% of first-time, full-time undergraduates at a given institution, do not graduate from that institution six years later. That's a, that's, a, that's a real failing of our system. But I am very much in the camp of mend it, don't end it. I don't think that that is an indication that too many people are being sent to college. I think it's an indication there's a lot more we could do to support those who go. I think that there's all kinds of reasons beyond academic preparation. That's part of it. We, we have a lot to do in K-12. But there's all kinds of reasons people are not persisting, everything from cost to sort of Obviously, there's a lot of discussion about the mental health crisis in the last few years, personal family circumstances. There are many different things, lack of good counseling, lack of good guidance, navigation assistance. That does not mean that everyone, we need to have 100% of people going to college. You know, I think that the, the idea that there is this kind of juggernaut of a college for all movement that's somehow like insisting that everyone fit into this completely, you know, one size fits all experience is just not true. I think it's a straw man. I think that we would certainly be, be be better off as a country if we had, let's say, five or ten percent percentage points more people going to college and completing college. If we could do something about the four, there's now a record number of Americans, 40 million Americans who have some college, no degree. So that obviously means they were not being well served. But I don't think that one ought to conclude, therefore, we're sending too many to college. I think there's a lot more we could do to give those who go better experiences. And then I'll just, I'll, I'll stop in a second, but I'll say that, you know, college is not one size fits all. We have, of course, very open access community colleges. We have the two-year degrees. We have the four-year degrees. We have the publics and the privates, the very selective, the very open access. We have lots of online places. We have places like uh, SNHU, Southern New Hampshire University, that are doing a lot of work with competency-based learning. Same thing for Western Governors University where they're trying to get away from the tradition of your seat time determining whether or not you've earned a credit and instead saying, can you show us by taking a test or some other way that you've learned the material? Maybe that's a better way to go. I think that I'm, I'm absolutely in favor of all kinds of experimentation and also of highlighting for young people that there isn't just one single path they have to take. There's a lot of different options under the umbrella term college. Yeah, I, but I, I, what I really don't like is the defeatism. Yeah. I just wonder sometimes whether uh, we, I mean, you're talking about supporting people in college, uh, you know, to help them kind of find their way, 
you know, to get the right good counsel uh, when they're in college. I wonder if we're doing enough in the before college time to help people, uh, help students like discern, you know, among all of these options. If we had a, a single message that said post-secondary education needs to be part of your future, let's find out what that means for you. Um, rather than everybody go to a four-year degree or everybody go off to an apprenticeship program or everybody do to do non-credit uh, certifications. I mean, uh, that, it seems to me, I don't know how you feel about this. I just think that we... Uh, we are over-indexed on the formal education side of things and really under-indexed <laughs> on career uh, vocational identification and development um, as a precursor to making decisions about, uh, you know, those educational choices. Well, that's a very that's a very interesting way to think about it. I mean, look, I think nobody is really against improved, you know, secondary school advising and so forth. You know, it's it's not always clear how do you get from how do you how do you get there. What I concluded, you know, in the little the little piece of this that I controlled just by working on the book was to try to focus on. I think that yes, I, I love the way you put it. I mean, if people just say that some kind of post-secondary education is going to be needed, but that can take a bunch of different forms, and we need to help people figure out the best things they can do, and that's partly what I'm trying to do by saying, look, you need to think about these three chunks of things that you need, these three broad categories, and one is these very broad skills because there's so much evidence, you know. And I'm thinking actually, as you, you know, I cite some of your research in this book, you know, the people with the STEM degrees. They may do fine. They may have better starting salaries out of college in their 20s. But by the time they've been in for eight or 10 years, and I think you did some you did some interviews, people are starting to have to do management mm -hmm. and leadership roles, different kinds of roles. And I think that if you've had more experience, whether it's working on projects, working, writing, you know, writing long papers, working in, in teams, if you've had a variety of work in college that gives you some of that ability to navigate change, that's going to be helpful. So I think if you're just telling people, okay, you need to be able to respond to changing circumstances and gather information and understand it and analyze it and make decisions and help persuade others, that's, those are very broad. They're maybe a little fuzzy, but those are broad skills that really matter. The second thing, of course, is you do need the targeted skills. You know, if you want to be doing programming, you know, I always tell people, I mean, you know, I studied, I was a, a lit major in college, but I did, you know, I, I was definitely interested in the broad liberal arts thing. So I took statistics. I, I took an introductory computer science class. You know, I tried to pick up some targeted things. And the stats was actually quite helpful as a journalist. You know, it's kind of useful if you're trying to develop a good BS detector, knowing something about statistics is helpful. But the caveat, of course, is if you're focusing on some of the targeted skills, and I'll, I'll say computer science, for example, I learned how to do some very basic programming in the computer language basic. But by the time I graduated, this is, you know, a full disclosure, 1986 was my college graduation. Hey, we graduated so, the same year. How about that? Is that yeah. right? Okay. Well, so we're, we're both seasoned. Yeah. We don't say old. We say seasoned. Um, but, you know, the, the, by the time I graduated, certainly within a couple years of graduation, I'm sure nobody was using basic anymore. So the thing about those, those targeted skills is they have what um, people would, would call a short half-life. They have to be replenished. But... 
going back to the big picture, I think if we talk to people in high school about how you need to think about your broad set of abilities that you're going to need throughout your life to navigate and to do well in lots of different changing circumstances, along the way, you need to focus on what's in demand, whether it's a, a nursing technique or a graphic design technique or a computer language, and can you bring to your employer something that's going to help them? And do you have the ability to learn new things as you need to? But the third thing, which was really a big revelation for me in working on the book, um, was the idea of social capital being really important. And that's the term that you know, is often used by sociologists and some others for networks. Because it turns out that you know, the, the, what you learn in degree programs or in targeted short-term credential programs is sort of necessary, but it's not sufficient. Because for many people, particularly people who have not grown up with a lot of advantages, who may be from a lower income background or maybe their family did not have a lot of education, they need to develop and they need to learn to work with networks because that's how people often turn what they've learned into a really a productive job. It's how they learn new information and it's also how they, you know, if you do an internship or you do a summer job, even if it's nothing fancy and you work with someone who sees you in action and they see that you show up on time and you show up every day and you do things the, the right way, then you've got somebody who can vouch for you. And having someone like that in your network is a huge part of how people really get ahead in the real world. The role of these, uh, I guess we call them weak ties, F not finding the job, but finding the next job. You know, it's, you know, the, the relationships that people build, the friendships that people build uh, in the workplace. It, it's so, um, in some ways, it's so frustrating because it's so hard to quantify, and yet it is so vital um, in terms of long-term success for people uh, in 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 their careers. Um, so I, I know that you wrote you wrote about uh, this uh, this social capital issue as it relates to the really um, you know people who come into education or into work with significant barriers, um, problems, um, or maybe they just come from families where uh, they're first gen, uh, thinking about post-secondary education. Um, what did you find in your research just in terms of, you know, who's, who does well at this, you know, in terms of social capital transfer um, from those with lots to those with not as much in terms of the if, if you mean the institutions that are trying to sort of transfer i think i mean the first thing to do is to think about what happens within the world of colleges because there is a in the best case scenario you know college can be a great transmitter of social capital and that's how it works for 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 many people you know it's a place where people of course it's sort of legendary for you know making friends you know building your network sometimes meeting your you know future partner all that stuff but by the same token, you know, a lot of people meet people in college that they have things in common with, and those become part of their networks personally and professionally for years. Then there are some colleges that do a pretty good job of this in terms of being very part of the, I think what, what's important is to explicitly think about the networks, the social capital as a, another skill to be, but, but not just a skill that you either have it or you don't, but a skill that can be acquired and that can be mastered with practice. So. It, whether it's having networking events, whether it is having um, helping people, you know, with better counseling, frankly, to get things like a, a internships or jobs that are in their field, because that's where they're going to help 
you know, build more of these networks. That's really important. Every sometimes it's having guest speakers. Sometimes it's having an actual uh, either a credit or a non-credit class that talks about things like how do you how do you do an informational interview? Well, how do you come to a meeting prepared with questions to ask? If you go to a, a guest lecture, here's what's a good conversation starter with a guest speaker who you might be interested in knowing a little bit more about their work. Those are things that are they're, they're not easy for many people, but those are things that that can be done. Having said that, not all colleges do it very well. There's some interesting survey research actually from from my old employer from Strata showing that you know first generation college students, a lot of college students wish they had had more networking assistance when they were in college. That's of all students. However, there's a discrepancy where it's the Pell, students receiving Pell Grants from lower income backgrounds. They're, they're much more likely to say they wish they had had more networking. So there really is a need there, and it doesn't always get well filled. There are some great organizations, which I wrote about a lot in the book, uh, that, that do this. They're nonprofits, places like Braven, Co-op Careers. There's one that actually I discovered. I didn't really write about it in the book, but I did an interview with their founder uh, for my own podcast last year called Project Basta. Um, and there's one actually that's not focused on college graduates, but it's focused people who may or may not have gone to uh, college, but they're kind of feel like they're stuck in jobs like barista jobs that are perfectly decent jobs, but they don't feel like there's much of a career ladder. This place is called Climb Higher, and it's in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they're really focused very much on getting people to practice, you know, the, the practice, you know, forming networks, practice asking questions, practice making introductions to people, and to see yourself as having skills that go beyond just, you know, knowing how to do the immediate task in front of you. And they also do things like Salesforce training. So they're trying to combine some of the practical skills, but they're very clear that if all you really care about is the practical skills, you can go and take an online class and do that. But if you're really concerned about building a network, you can work with a, you know one of this organization Climb Higher or some of the other organizations, and that's really going to give you a skill that you can take with you throughout your career. I know that like Western governors, for instance, I think they they attach to every new student, they attach a mentor or somebody who is a little bit further along in the program to kind of just provide coaching to new students trying to get, find their footing inside this all virtual university. Uh, and part of that is really encouraging uh, the newer students to take advantage of all the opportunities that even something like a virtual university like uh, Western Governors uh, has to offer. I'm, I'm just curious if there's, uh, are there any, are there any actual schools? Let's, let's just limit it to four-year schools that uh, you think in your, uh, in your research that you came across that you thought, wow, they are really doing something. They're taking this question seriously and they are attempting to build into their program uh, this uh, awareness. They wouldn't call it a, the awareness. They wouldn't call it awareness of social capital, but they would, you know, awareness of the importance of social connections as part of the way that they educate their students. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, I wish I could say that I had lots of great examples of sort of major institution-wide commitments to do this on a large mm -hmm. scale. What I have more of is sort of some what I thought were some striking examples of how individual institutions could do this 
without compromising their sort of academic mission, which is always what professors worry about. They don't want to be considered job training people. You know, they they worry about the sort of the pure mission of the university. But actually, I think it's not that hard to bridge the gap. I think you can you can um, maintain, and I believe in the mission too. You know, you care about the search for truth, and you care about building knowledge, but. Sometimes it's just a matter of helping explain to your students what all the different programs they, they study, actually what, what those translate to in the real world. I think about a place called Point Loma Nazarene uh, University in San Diego, small religiously affiliated college, liberal arts college. I believe they get quite a few first generation students and families. So they're naturally a little, a lot of people are skeptical about what is this with the liberal arts. But if you say, well, a lot of our biology majors end up working in the biotech industry in San Diego, which is a thriving industry, it doesn't mean that they're lab scientists. They might be working in marketing or sales or something, but they're real jobs. Simply drawing that connective mm-hmm. tissue for people, and they've done some work of taking their career services office and putting it, mixing it more tightly with their academic uh, you know, offices, and that's really important. Uh, similarly, uh, a classic liberal arts college in Ohio, Kenyon College, has, um, has done what one uh, journalist described as creating something like those maps that airlines put in the back of airline magazines showing where all the routes go and they're trying to show people where all the majors map onto so you know if you're an english professor you know yeah you're probably you're going to spend a lot of time on close textual analysis or you know whatever your projects are but you can also i don't think that you're sort of compromising your mission to tell people being able to write clearly and accurately and to you know the things i've mentioned synthesize information there's a million jobs, whether you go to law school, whether you end up working in marketing or advertising or doing, you know, communications for somebody. There's a lot of other things you can do with this. So I think that and then finally, I'll, uh, there's another example, another smaller college, Wellesley College, a women's college in Massachusetts. There's a neuroscience professor who I mentioned in the book who just invites for the senior capstone project. She invites neuroscientists to come in and talk about their careers. So it's just a matter of helping make those connections a little bit more explicit. I'll, I'll say one more that occurs to me. The, the president of the University of, of Montana, um, Seth Bodnar, who was a military veteran. I've met was him, a, yeah. a, Also taught at West Point. Very impressive uh, guy. He wrote a piece in Inside Higher Ed a year or so ago. And I think one of the things he just talked about was really working with alumni, not, of course, just hitting them up for money, which everyone has to do. That's part of the college president's job, right? But really trying to get them to offer internships and jobs to students. So it's a way of trying to tell people you really need basically getting that hands-on experience at a place that has, maybe you're just going to rule it out as a place you'd ever want to work for your, for your career, but getting a chance as a student to try things out, to have people evaluate you, to have you evaluate them, that's very, very powerful. And that is really how career networks get, get made. Uh, people get to people get to know you, and they get to see if they can if they can vouch for you in the future. So I think there's there are multiple fronts that colleges could do more on, but I cannot unfortunately I cannot tell you about someone who's really got it down perfectly. Well, I mean, I think that that's uh, the examples are great, uh, and uh, the uh, you know when there's no signal on something, that's a signal. Uh, you know that that this is not something that is uh has formed <laughs> as an issue in the minds of people who are guiding these institutions um 
uh, at least in a in a way that would you know find life uh, in in programmatic expression in the schools. So that's that's very helpful. So Ben, as you're well aware, those of us who uh, are toiling in this vineyard, who take the the position that um, degrees are important um, and do make a difference uh, and do have are associated with important outcomes, uh, both economic and non-economic uh, outcomes um, for individuals and communities. You know, uh, we we've been facing a bit of an onslaught. Um, uh, and, and a variety of different, uh, coming from a variety of different directions. I mean, uh, in terms of people saying either, you know, the BA isn't worth it. It's, uh, it, it's either pure signaling or it's actually, uh, has a negative impact, uh, in, in some dimensions. Um, but there's been another front in this war, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't say war. This this polite disagreement um, over um, four year degrees, and it and it comes in, under the the name of skills based hiring, um, which is let's just get away from all this credentialing stuff. Um, you know what we want to know is what you can do, and then that's what we want to pay you for. And so let's just focus on what you can do. Um, and I'd like to get your thoughts on on this movement because it's very it's it, it's actually somewhat difficult to make an argument against it. If if somebody can do the job, why should we insist? Why should an employer, not we, but why should an employer insist on a credential uh, that's unnecessary? Look, I don't. I, I'm. I think there is a pretty good argument to make against it, but it's not because of what employers, you know, what requirements they must have or they, they have to have. I think that that's a, a mistaken sort of framework. And part of my whole concern about this is I do feel that we're getting a lot of sort of over-promising on um, this, uh, this sort of idea of the world of skills-based hiring. And I particularly worry about young people and particularly young people without a lot of advantages who I think stand a lot of reason to gain from more education being told instead you're um, you're just great the way you are because you have skills. Don't worry about getting that degree, which I think is how in the in the sort of world of bumper sticker slogans, that's how things translate. Um, and you know, I did uh, wisely or unwisely, I did a, a, a piece in, in, a, in a piece I wrote about this for the New York Times a few months ago. I used the the term virtue signaling to talk about a lot of the states and private employers who are getting a lot of attention you know, because they've been really encouraged strongly by some advocacy groups to drop degree requirements. But what I think is important to realize is it's not about whether, certainly I don't think this is a role for the state to to decide who should have a degree requirement. I believe in markets. But the reality of the market is that there is what economists call a very strong revealed preference for degrees. Employers really prefer to hire people with degrees. And even when there's some surveys from SHRM, which is the Society for Human Resource Management, even when you have CEOs who are going to these conferences and hearing about how we're in this new world of skills, they all say, oh, yeah, I think skills are just as good. But then you talk to the people who actually do the hiring, the hiring managers, and they're much more likely to prefer degrees. And I think, you know, I, I, I'll try to kind of boil down the message. But, of course, it's not because, again, I'm not saying you must have a particular requirement. I think people, you know, should should be allowed to hire, you know, whatever works best for them. But 
I think it's a category error to think that somehow in, in saying a, a degree is required or preferred is the equivalent to, let's say, requiring a cosmetology license for someone who is, you know, who is, you know, who is doing your nails. That's a whole debate, and there's a, and I'm quite sympathetic to the sort of deregulatory impulse that says we have a lot of excessive credentialing for certain kinds of fields. Sometimes it's driven by industry organizations that are trying to keep out competition. I'm very sympathetic with that, but I really think it's a category error to put degrees in the same category. And the reason is it comes to back to what I talked about before. It's human capital. If you think degrees are just kind of bogus, and or you you sort of are very strongly suspect that they're bogus, and that's partly because you've perhaps been caught up in the culture wars, or you are just convinced that they're teaching people a lot of nonsense. And there is stuff happening on campuses that I find troubling and upsetting around free speech and other issues. Um, but I think we have to go back to what the evidence shows. You know, all of the wa- the increased wage premium did not come because there was some central planner who held a gun to people's head and said, I want you to pay a lot more for people with college degrees. It's because people went to college and they had all these new not this knowledge and skills and employers wanted to pay more for it. That just happened. That was the market at work. So I feel like it's a little bit rich for people. And I honestly, I said this to a group at AEI not, not, not too long ago. I think it's a little bit, you know, it surprises me to, and I'm fond of AEI, you know, from working there back in my 20s at a place that is, I, I believe, did and still does care about markets to suddenly be thinking about credentialism in a way that it seems to me doesn't really appreciate the real value. And I'll just throw out one other example, which is, you know, back in the 1960, I looked up the number, the percentage of Americans with high school diplomas was, uh, I think, among Americans over age 25 or so, it was something like 40%. It was really a very low, I was surprised by how low it was. So you could easily have said the push to get more people to graduate from high school is based on it. It's a terribly unrealistic idea of what people are capable of and you're pushing people to go to high school and you could have said they're perfectly fine with all the skills they have. Well, guess what? We didn't do that. We actually continued to really push education. Uh, and not that high school and college are identical, but we now have a 91% high school graduation rate in this country. And I think that's really good for the country and it's good for human capital. It's good for the economy. So this is why I'm just so concerned that the, the skills-based hiring movement, of course, it comes from a good place. Um, and it's trying to be to, to be helpful to people's aspirations, but I worry that it gets translated into a message that just runs counter to what all the economic evidence tells us about the benefits of education. And then I'll, I'll throw in, I can't resist, one final point. You know, this is, I guess I sort of alluded to this when I mentioned, uh, you know, what the CEOs think versus what the hiring managers think. But just, um, this, is, came, this came actually, it's not in the book because it just came out um, when, about, about three months ago when the book was getting ready to be released. LinkedIn, which of course has a huge amount of data on all these issues, they did a big study showing that in a number of major fields, including communications and some others, big sectors, there was, in just in the last three years, there was perhaps a 250 or in some cases a 300% increase in job listings that had no degree requirement. So you might say, okay, hallelujah, this new world has arrived. You know, but we've, we've talked about all these governors and states dropping degree requirements for jobs. It's really happening. But then the same study by LinkedIn also looked at what happened with not just with the job listings, but with the actual hiring. And they found in the same sectors where there was a 250% increase in job listings with no degree required, there was a 3% increase in actual hires of people without degrees. 
That's, and that's, you did not mishear that. That's 3% versus 250%. So to me, that's revealed preferences at work. And again, it doesn't mean it won't change. It may be that we'll talk 10, 20 years from now and there will have been a sea change. There are some smart people thinking about this and working on this. There are efforts to try to measure skills, more in discrete skills, more accurately in a more useful way. But we don't have that right now. So I don't feel comfortable telling a young person, just stick with skills. Don't worry about those degrees. They're just a signal. That's not what the real evidence is telling us right now. And so I just feel like it's irresponsible. I I, I completely concur, uh, obviously. Uh, I want... I want people to thrive. I want them to grow where they're planted. I want them to uh, follow, you know, their the path that that they need to follow in order to succeed and to flourish uh, in life. And I and I think the 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 real answer to me is uh, it's something I mentioned before, which is we need to stop telling people what their path ought to be. Uh, and start asking them, uh, where do you think you're headed? What is it that you want to do with your life? You you are the you are the entrepreneur, the owner of your of your life, uh, who has got to make decisions about investments and education and and how uh, what your what your long term goals and your long term plans and your enduring interests are. Um, uh, Rather than, like I said, everyone go to college. Nobody go to college. You know, uh, this this sort of weird way that we ricochet back and forth between these positions. And uh, and I think this is going to be that the value of these more generalizable skills that seem to arise out of uh, uh, post-secondary education, in post-secondary education, particularly in four-year degrees, uh, the value of that is becoming more and more evident as the pace of change has accelerated and is accelerating. Um, we mm-hmm. literally, there, there's like you said, there's no plan here. There's no, there's nobody pu- pulling on it on a, a lever uh, to do, you know, to create the economy that we've got. It arises spontaneously and, uh, and it changes on its own of it, you know. So this is really about adaptation, you know, about how do we equip people for adaptation. And that is the master skill, right? The master skill for the future is not coding. It's not welding. Uh, it's not plumbing. It is being able to adapt to uh, an economy that we can't really envision yet um uh and i just wanted as our give you the last word on this but uh artificial intelligence is on everyone's mind uh and i'm curious uh, obviously your book was in process just as uh the large language model um uh, ai programs were were coming on the scene but I'm curious as to how you're thinking about um the emergence of ai from this um career arts standpoint? Well, I confess, I think I did t- take one of my op-eds and I put it into chat GPT to see what it would sound like if you asked it to be at a, done at a fourth grade level. Um, and that was kind of fun. So, you know, I like everyone, I'm having fun playing with these things. But look, I, I think, you know, things that we might once have plausibly said that 
you know, in, and I'm not really not again. I'm not against coding. You know, I I, um, I have a lot of respect for people who do this. People who do it really well. It's it can be very elegant, um, and effective. But coding might have seemed like a really vital skill. You know, ten years or ago, three years or ago, five years I ago, mean, or yeah, three years ago, yeah. and. And now we, we, although I don't think that the, the most sophisticated, effective coders are going to be supplanted, a lot of the basic coding can be done by ChatGPT. So that would be, again, I, I absolutely appreciate the targeted skills are important. If you're trying to get a job, you need to tell your employer something persuasive about the skill you have. But those broader skills are also something employers care about. They care about the ability to work with other people and to communicate and to navigate different situations. And your own, if you're managing the brand of you over time, which is what I think we have to get people thinking about, they absolutely need to know, like, don't count on becoming a coder in the world of chat GBT as, as, your, as, your, as your main bet. You may want to be someone who has a good, who has good judgment about where the chat GPT kind of first draft needs to be tweaked and improved and what, what could be done better by a human touch. There's just a lot of area for that. Um, the adaptability that you highlighted is, is really going to be vital. Well, this has been great, Ben. Thank you so much for uh, your time. Thank you for writing the book. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes and encourage everyone uh, to read it. Maybe wrap it up as a present. If you've got uh, a child who is getting ready to graduate from college or a family that is uh, thinking uh, thinking about college education choices, post-secondary education choices. And um, I know that there's more books in you, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the next one. Well, thank you so much, Brent, for having me. It was a great conversation, uh, as, as always. And um, I, can't, I can't resist saying I even have gotten into TikTok. I've done a couple of TikToks, you know, about the book, trying to, to reach all the key demographics. So, you know, definitely, definitely appreciate your, uh, your encouragement for people to get a copy as a, as a graduation gift for someone. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.